Well, good morning. So for those of you not connected to Facebook or you haven't gone on the awesome new church website, or you're not engaged in a small group or you don't gossip, we have a new senior minister. Praise God. Brady Bryce will be back on stage starting September 8th, and we're excited to begin this new chapter here at first, and we look forward to walking with him in Christ, bringing Jesus to our community. Brady and his wife Donna and their two kids, Nathan and Lizzie, will be an absolute wonderful addition to this church. And I'd ask for your prayers for their family during this time of transition, and let's just love them when they get to Albuquerque. Let's, let's make them feel so at home from the moment they get here. And also on that line, let's keep the Caffrey family in our prayers as they transition as well um, and thank them for their service to FIRST and for Tom's leadership over the last 13 years. So a big thank you to the search committee and to Lawrence who led that committee. Um, thank you to others that I'm going to mention here in a minute, especially one group, but everybody who stepped up to step in, thank you so much. And a big thank you to the youth sponsors because We were looking for a youth minister before we found out that we would be looking for a senior minister. And so when we found out, we asked the youth sponsors if they'd mind waiting. And they waited. And they've waited. And they've waited. However, that's next on the agenda. But thank you. I don't think you know how much it's meant to not only the elders, but the parents to know that their kids are being loved by you all. So thank you so very much. Thank you to everybody who prayed throughout this process, and mostly thank you to our good, good God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for helping us during this transition, for guiding us. May you continue to guide us in everything we do. May your love fall over these people who worship you. And Lord, may we be the light as we leave here today to bring others to you, not for any glory for us, but for your glory. God, we'd ask for safety and care for the Bryce family as they move here, and, and may they know our love, but more importantly, your love from the moment they arrive. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so last week, Greg Hunt delivered a very powerful message, but he informed us that he'd be skipping the scheduled Matthew scriptures, and he said we could stone him if we liked. Now, I don't think that happened. I wasn't out there afterwards, but I'm pretty sure that didn't happen, but that's what he invited. So I'm going to go back and revisit those scriptures before we start the scheduled ones today. Chapters 8 and 9 in Matthew show the authoritative power of Jesus and his kingdom power on earth is demonstrated. So Jesus has already shown himself as the Messiah through his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and now he shows himself to be the Messiah through deed and performance of miracles, and he shows that the kingdom of God has arrived. Matthew 8, 18 through 23. And when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And he said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This subsection in your Bibles is often titled The Cost of Discipleship. So you have Jesus, God in human form, a man who began his life in a borrowed barn, 
and temporarily ended it in a borrowed tomb, basically saying to this scribe, I have no home. I am a homeless person. Are you willing to give up your home to follow me? And the second person who wants to wait with, to follow him, and by the, by the way, the phrase, let me go bury my father at that time, did not mean the father was already dead. In fact, it more likely would have meant, let me wait until I receive my inheritance, or let me wait until my father does die, and then I'll follow you. But Jesus is saying, wherever you are in your life, follow me now. Don't wait until your finances are straight, I've finished my education, I've got that relationship I want. And there are any number of reasons that we sometimes say to God, you know, just a minute, Lord, let me, let me finish this task, and then I promise I'm all yours. So this section talks about the supposed cost. But perhaps if we can align ourselves through study and living to God's will for our lives, if we submit to him now, then that cost can really become an adventure with Christ. Friday I was here, and I know some of you were here as well, celebrating Art Cordova's life. And for those of you who don't know, Art was one of the, the real movers in this church early on, and he's been a member here for a long time. And I believe he was 98, almost 99. But you heard from the testimony of his kids, and grandkids, and nieces, and nephews, that Art lived an adventure following Jesus. Art studied the word. He became a scholar in the word. But he also gave himself to Christ and was ready for whatever God had in store for him. We heard about him climbing up to the top of a mountain only to raise his arms at the top to praise God and praying to the community that he saw below him. We also heard about him taking some kids, nieces and nephews, in a four-wheel drive back in the 70s and riding across the Rio Puerco, except they only made it halfway across. So we heard then about Art trying to get the four-wheel drive out of the Rio Puerco for hours. And then we heard, and depending on who was telling the story, we heard about the six or seven hour walk back home. Because there weren't cell phones, no way to call AAA, they walked. But interestingly enough, what we didn't hear was that Art got angry, that Art blamed anyone, that Art cussed, that what we heard about was Art spending time, and that meant so much to his nieces and nephews. Art was always ready to follow God's plan for him. And by the testimony that we heard, he brought Jesus everywhere he went. There was one person who reaffirmed that it doesn't always have to be some big thing, a showy thing, to make an impact of bringing Jesus in their life. She said that it meant so much to her when Art would just come up and say, how are you? Because she knew he really cared how she was. It wasn't a how are you, let me keep going to say how are you. It was a how are you because I love you and I care about you. Not a big cost, but it meant the world to this woman. It was just the way Art was because he decided a long time ago that he would immerse himself in God's word and he would give himself up to Christ. You know, I only got to talk to Art a few times, but what always struck me was his enthusiasm for God and God's word 
And there was a gleam in his eye every time you talked to him because he was having an adventure following Jesus. And I can only imagine when he came home and he raised his arms at the top of the mountain, what a smile must have been on his face. And hearing the words, well done, art my good and faithful servant. When we truly desire to submit to God, there will be things we don't understand and things we don't even like. But God has a plan for us. And when we freely die to ourselves and are born again in Christ, I really believe that the cost of discipleship can become an adventure. So now I'll get back to today's message, which is Matthew 8.23 through 9.8. And all of it can be summed up basically with two words. Jesus restores. Jesus restores peace. All of the persons in these three stories, in these three miracles, had a need for peace. And Jesus provided that peace. He restored them to their peace. First in Matthew 8, 23 to 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by waves, but he was asleep. Now on a side note, wouldn't it be great to sleep that well? Wouldn't you love just to be able to sleep that soundly? And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? The Sea of Galilee is actually fairly small. It's about 13 miles long, and at its widest point is eight miles wide. And the Jordan Valley makes a deep cleft into the earth, and the Sea of Galilee is part of that cleft. It's 680 feet below sea level, which makes for a warm and comfortable climate, but it also creates great dangers. On the west side, there are hills with valleys and gullies, and when a cold wind comes from the west, these valleys and gullies act like gigantic funnels, and the wind gets compressed and rushes down upon the sea with a savage violence. You can even read today about people who have gone to the edge and of the Sea of Galilee, and it looks like glass, and they think this couldn't be the same place. And minutes later, they're running away because the waves have started to come crashing onto the shore. That's the sea that we're talking about in verses 23 to 27. So Jesus has already taught them as the Messiah during the Sermon on the Mount, and now he will show him through his miracles. So let's go back to the boat. Jesus is sleeping, and the disciples are trying to get the boat to the other side, when all of a sudden there's a storm, and it's overwhelming. The boat is filling with water, and we know there are at least four experienced fishermen on that boat. These four, as well as the others, were afraid for their lives. Their sailing expertise had reached its limit. Their self-reliance had reached its end. The power of darkness, the power of the devil, the power of the elements were too much for them, and at times too much for us, no matter how skilled or trained we are. What to do then when our skills have reached their end? You know, they were scared, and rightfully so. In Mark, when he's recording the same story, he says in chapter 4, verse 38, that Jesus was in the stern asleep when the disciples awoke him and said, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? Don't you care? Jesus, 
don't you care? Haven't we all asked that question at one time or another during the storms in our life? Now, this was a real storm, and these were experienced fishermen, and they were very afraid. This was a literal storm in their lives, but they couldn't rely on themselves any further, and Jesus slept. Didn't he, doesn't he care? The problem was the disciples had not yet learned the fullness of Christ. In Psalm 21, it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. Now, the disciples realized that Jesus was powerful. He was an incredible teacher, maybe even a miracle worker. But he was asleep, and they were in trouble. What they failed to realize, and I have to admit that sometimes I do too, is that it's true that Jesus, the man, slept. But Jesus, the living God, never sleeps. When we're going through the storms in our lives and God isn't responding on our timetable or the way we like, he isn't sleeping or ignoring us. Our God is a good God and he cares about you and he cares about me. But his ways are not always our ways. God is not asleep. He does care about your storms. So prior to calming the seas, Jesus chides the disciples saying, why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? I mean, can't you just see this? They're trying to shake Jesus awake. And prior to that, he looks up and says, why are you afraid, ye of little faith? Now, personally, if you ever go hiking with me and you find me hanging off the edge of a cliff, I'd appreciate it if you'd pull me up before you asked me why I went so close to the edge. But Jesus didn't do that. Because he knew who was in charge. He was in charge. And he knew the sea would be calmed on his timing. He wasn't going to lose control of this situation by asking that one question. So Jesus asks. We don't hear that there were any responses. And then Jesus calms the sea. He restores peace. Oftentimes, I would imagine, I know with me, that most of us are most receptive to reaching out to God during the storms in our lives, when our skills and our self-reliance have faded away. There comes a time when we realize, no matter what our training is, that we aren't equipped to do this alone. And those who have actually given their lives completely to Christ and have become a slave to him live every minute of every day with that knowledge. In Psalm 107, we hear that some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works, in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Jesus knew the storm was coming. Certainly he could have prevented it, but he permitted it to come in order to teach a lesson to his disciples. 
And it's strange because the storm came not when they disobeyed, but when they obeyed. He got in the boat and they followed him. And yet Jesus slept resting in the resting confidently in the will of the Father. And really that's what the disciples should have done as well. And what I should do more often. You know, it's, it's strange that Jesus chides them for little faith. And you wonder if in their brains they faith, where have I heard that? Because recently with a centurion, Jesus marveled at his faith. Jesus marveled because he said, you don't even have to come to my house, just say it and it will be. And yet the disciples couldn't even think that. Jesus teaches and God wants us to rely upon him and to submit to his will because he's a good God. And Jesus restores the calm to our seas. So Jesus has now demonstrated his power and authority over diseases and nature. And the next verses reveal his power over the unseen supernatural world. But you know, I often think, what must the rest of that boat ride been like? The disciples come up, Jesus, Jesus, save us, don't you care about us? Seas calm. Was there any discussion after that? Did Peter mouth off about something? Did James and John try and get right next to Jesus? I don't know, and it doesn't say. But my guess would be they were just still struck with awe and wonder. So in the next verses, verses 28 to 34, Jesus brings back lost life and demonstrates himself Lord of other dimensions and realms. And when they came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? The demons immediately knew who Jesus was. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. You know, it's strange. The disciples just moments before had wondered what kind of man it was who could calm the seas, and yet the demons knew exactly who they were dealing with from the moment they saw him. So Jesus and the disciples had made their way across the sea, and they come ashore in this country of the Gadarenes, which was predominantly Gentile. On the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, it has limestone cliffs full of caves, which were used for tombs. So the dead were buried there. And out of the tombs comes these two demon-possessed men. Now, when Matthew first wrote this gospel, three things would have shocked the first century reader. First, that Jesus, on purpose, went to a predominantly Gentile area. Second, that he went into a cemetery inhabited by unclean bodies. And third, that he's met by these two demon-possessed men. And just as first century people treated natural forces with greater respect than we do, they also respected more highly the forces of the spirit world. Demons to the first century reader would be looked at as fallen angels who have joined Satan his rebellion against God. They are disruptors of the whole life of man, and they continue today. 
They recognize him immediately and cry out, And what have you to do with us, O Son of God? They recognize Jesus as God's Son. The fact that they believed Jesus was God's Son and acknowledged it, though, was not enough to save them. In James chapter 2, he says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So mere mental assent to the Christian faith does not save anyone. Mere recognition of Christ, God, and the Holy Spirit don't save. As Paul and James both affirm, the faith that saves embraces the truth and acts accordingly. The demons were not willing to yield their life to Jesus, even though they acknowledged his authority as the Son of God, but they would not worship him. They acknowledge Jesus, but make it clear they are not willing to submit to him because they ask if he came to torment them before the time. So what time are they talking about? In Revelation, we find out in chapter 14, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And they knew they were in the presence of the Lamb. And then farther along in Revelation in chapter 20, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The demons were worried that day that Jesus had come prematurely to punish them. They knew Christ had the authority and the power to hurl demons into the abyss even before the appointed time. The demons also knew that a time of judgment awaits them and know at that time they will be permanently removed from God's people and suffer for an eternity. Despite knowing all this and acknowledging who Jesus is, that he's theologically correct about hell and their eternal destiny, they choose not to be saved. The demons realize the absolute powerlessness of evil to contend with God. So they ask to be cast into the pigs. They are asking, they are requesting permission because they know who they are talking to. And it's interesting that the centurion knew, and the demons knew, and the disciples had been both places, and yet they didn't yet know. So Jesus, upon hearing the request, says one word, go. And the demons go because they recognize the power and authority that Jesus possesses. So Jesus has now restored these two men, and he's brought peace to the community. And what a contrast to what Satan does to a person. Robs them of sanity and self-control. These two men were so wild and violent that no one could or would even try to pass by them. Even today, Satan fills us with fear, robs us of the joys of home and friends, and tries to condemn us to an eternity of judgment. And what does society do to people under Satan's control? We isolate them, we threaten them, but folks, society can't change them. But with Jesus, all things are possible. What Jesus did for these two demon-possessed men, he will gladly do for anyone else who needs and asks him. Christ came to them. Heck, he even went through a storm to get to them. This is the grace of God. He delivered them by the power of his word and by his authority. He restored them. The account in Mark says one of the saved men asked Jesus if he can become a disciple of the Lord, but Jesus sends him home to be a witness. 
You know, it's interesting to realize in this story there are three petitions of Christ. First, the demons request to go into the swine, and that's granted. The citizens request for Jesus to leave, and he does. But the man that Jesus heals requests to be a disciple, and Jesus says, no, I have other plans for you over here. Sometimes when I've read this scripture, I get all caught up in the herd of pigs being destroyed and the loss to the farmers as they're going down the hill and honestly, probably subconsciously, a, a loss of all that bacon makes me sad. <laughs> but that's really not the point. The point is that Jesus delivered these two men from the powers of Satan. You see, God owns everything. He restored these two men and he restored peace in the community where for a long time, these two men had caused so much trouble. So Jesus chose his authority over sickness, demons, and storms. And now finally, Jesus will show his authority over sin. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, Jesus cures a paralytic. And getting in the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their hearts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then says to the paralytic, Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This passage teaches us things that we can learn and apply today. First, his friends were aware the paralytic had needs. In fact, the paralytic probably relied on friends and family to do anything. But the friends realized that. But there's something that sets these friends apart, and that's their intent. They recognize Jesus as God, and Jesus being God accurately understands the true intent of these friends. They have brought their friend to Jesus to be healed. And meeting the needs, the physical needs of our fellow men, women, and children, that's noble and even godly. But meeting the physical needs and being kind to those around us are not a be-all and end-all of bringing Lord to people or bringing people to the Lord. There's something in addition to kindness and meeting physical needs. And it's something about the hearts of these friends that Jesus saw. He saw their faith. So the intent of these men was to bring their friend to be healed. That's absolutely true on the surface. But Jesus recognized something more. Jesus recognized that these friends, maybe they were at the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe they had seen him perform other miracles. He realized that they had come to the conclusion that this itinerant preacher, this Jesus, was indeed the Son of God, that he was God, and that he was the only one who could meet the foremost problem of their friend, which was to take away his sins. In Jesus' time, sickness was intertwined with sin. People believed if you were sick, you must have sinned, and the only way to be healed was to have your sins forgiven. Perhaps this paralytic knew he was a sinner. Maybe he even believed God was his enemy. But Jesus brings this man love, grace and God's forgiveness. He lets him know that God is not his enemy, that his sins are forgiven, and that God loves him. 
He's cured because of the belief of his friends. Jesus is touched by their faith, by their belief. And so because of that, he heals their friend. And of course, like any time when Jesus does something like this, it upsets somebody. And this time it upset the scribes. They believed that Jesus was dishonoring God by taking it upon himself, the prerogative to forgive sins. And only God can do that. Duh. I mean, God is here. God is doing that. And they don't recognize it. God was in their midst. He's establishing his deity when he forgives this man's sins. In fact, he's establishing his authority to forgive all mankind of their sins. But he deals with the scribes when he says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And I have to stop here for a minute because as I was preparing this message, and everybody else here probably always thinks about this, but it always has gone over my head. When I'm saved, I realize that I have an eternal life. But folks, we all have eternal lives. The question is, where are we going to spend it? We'll all end up there. We won't get to take any of our money or our homes, our nice dresses or clothes, big screen TVs. We'll just take the life we've lived into eternity. So the question is, where will it be? Will it be in heaven with our Lord and Savior? Or will it be in hell that's been prepared by Satan and his demons. But here's the good news. And there's always the good news in our Bible and the restoration for us all. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Jesus came onto earth not only to forgive the sins of the paralytic, but to forgive my sins and to forgive your sins. So if we stand in sin, we can have that sin forgiven by the Lamb of God who suffered for me and for you. In Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians, Paul tells the church at Corinth, I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Jesus, because of this man's friends, chose to save him so that others might see the glory of God and that God's glory might reach those that are lost. Jesus restores this paralytic physically, but more importantly, he restores him of forgiving his sins. He basically gets him right with God. So my question today is, are you right with God? And am I right with God? Are there sins you need forgiven? We're going to celebrate communion shortly. If you have sins, lay them before God. Lay them before your Savior. Ask for forgiveness and repent of those sins. And then glorify God and thank God for the mercy he has shown all of us. You know, if you haven't yet given your life to Christ, and we know one did today and what a glorious thing that is, we'd love to have you become part of God's family to join us either through a confession of faith or a baptism. If you have questions about Jesus and the steps you'd like to take going forward, talk to me or talk to Jimmy or any of the elders or the prayer team that's going to be in the back. And lastly, as we continue to go through our transition as a church body, let's make a covenant with God and a commitment to each other that we will diligently study God's word, 
and we'll glorify his name in all that we do, and that our lives will be a reflection of his mercy and love toward us, and that we will gladly accept the cost of discipleship. But more than that, when we lay down ourselves to him, we will look forward every day to the adventure of discipleship and look forward to our complete restoration through Jesus Christ. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Lord, most of all, we thank you for your grace and mercy. You wrap your arms around us. You take us through the storm. And you calm the seas. Lord, we give thanks to you. We praise you. And we ask you to watch over us. And it's in your son's holy name that we pray. Amen.